It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. China's instincts are for stability, both at home and abroad. Um, So I don't think it's going to be trying to goad Putin into taking a stand in Eastern Europe. Europe has come down a notch in terms of the US's primary strategic theatre ordering. Indo-Pacific has come up there, and that matters. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this episode, Nathan Attrell and Liz Buchanan join Will Stoltz to discuss the evolving relationship between China and Russia and its impact on Australia. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of any organisation with which they're affiliated. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the lands from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Well, Nathan, Liz, thanks so much for joining us on the National Security Podcast. It's obviously been... um, you know, a big couple of weeks for you guys in terms of your various fields of expertise studying China and Russia. We had the um, Putin-Xi meeting recently, which I want to kind of address the biggest, you know, the biggest thing to come out of that meeting, which to me is the clear gap in floral arrangements between Western diplomatic events and those held by the Chinese government. I mean, Beijing would have run out of florists, I think, to, to cater for that event. It was really quite um, spectacular. So I do worry that we might have a bit of a flower gap emerging between um, the West and the PRC. But, you know, I, I, any reactions from you to that? I, th- I think flag-waving children is also something ah. we need to... But maybe when it's more COVID safe. True, true. Right, but I just think flowers, flag-waving children underscores the fact that this was... For me, at least as an analyst, a lot for show. All theatre. Piece of paper and a bit of theatre. Yeah. And it worked. Look at us talk about it. We're doing a whole podcast on the relationship. <laughs> so to that point, though, seriously, like what – like I understand that there was um, an agreement relating to gas pipeline is kind of – that struck me as kind of like the most tangible thing that was actually agreed to. Was there anything else more than – you know, because there was a lot spoken about this being a unlim- – I think unlimited kind of partnership no, no, was kind of – No the, limits. Yeah. yeah. Five-in-one body wash, comprehensive <laughs> friendship with benefits. Well, I might take the energy side of things yeah. just because that's my baby. So I think the first thing to underscore is the fact that, you know, Russia-China energy ties are you know, decadal. This is nothing new. Um, I was more interested in what wasn't said in this energy deal. So not a huge amount has been agreed. Um the route is quite interesting because the first line, which is Paris-Siberia, so a gas pipeline between Russia and China, you know, that took 15 years to negotiate. China was able to beat down the price, you know, for what it's paying for Russian gas. And, uh, you know, this is a bone of contention in the Kremlin for sure. China also dictated the route. So 
<clears throat> dictated the route. So instead of going through Mongolia, which was the ideal um, entry point for the Russians into China, it goes directly into China, so further east. Right. Costs more. Um, of course, you know, the Chinese paid, but this is another aspect of the control falling more to Beijing's side here. Um, so the second pipeline, we don't know exactly what route it's going to take. I suspect there'll be no um, transit state involved again. You know, that's not going to be um, something the Kremlin is going to be too happy about. Um, but I just, yeah, I wanted to underscore the fact that this is, I didn't see anything new here Yeah. in a gas deal. It wasn't a huge amount um, that has been contracted for and I'm much more interested in what India is doing with the Russians Interesting. up further north in the Arctic. And Nathan, I'm interested to get your take on this because I know that you and I have spoken about this before, about how a lot of the time, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but a lot of the time uh, the PRC's behaviour in relation to kind of these crises of confidence that emerge around the West are often kind of exploited for kind of momentary gain. Like how much of this from Xi's point of view was just to get a really good photo op and demonstrate closeness to Russia to kind of poke West in the eye while, you know, Ukraine is obviously an issue. I think a lot of it is about that. And also there was some speculation that she would ask Putin to not uh, make any trouble mm. in uh, Eastern Europe during the during the Olympics, which are very important. Um, they're always an important moment for China and also, also an important moment for uh, Putin and his foreign policy. For Russian defence planning. Exactly right. So you have Georgia <laughs> in 2008 uh, and then Ukraine again during the Sochi Olympics. So Putin seems to enjoy doing stuff on, in Olympic years. <laughs> I think she was keen to have him not do something yeah. during this period. And that's kind of where we are. Like we're not really talking that much about Ukraine and Russia as we were in the sort of month leading up to. Um, it still remains frozen, literally and metaphorically. Yeah. Um, I think it importantly shows how much she and Putin get along personally and how they both head regimes that are sort of predicated on themselves as individuals. Um, and they're both sort of of a similar age, shaped by the modern history of their respective countries, both obsessed with the fall of the Soviet Union and how to avoid that. Um, and that's sort of playing out in the relationship of the countries that they rule over. Yeah, interesting. Because I suppose, you know, in, in Western parlance, we often, and I'm guilty of this as well, we often refer to kind of authoritarian states and we kind of refer to China and Russia just together. Like, and, but I'm interested to know, you know, how much of an affinity do these countries really have for each other? Like, they've obviously got, you know, they, they have a shared history in relation to their experiences during the Cold War, but obviously Russia is not a communist country anymore. They have different, you know, very different languages, um, you know, different approaches to things like religion and these sorts of things um, culturally as well. You know, do they have an affinity as authoritarian states? Do they view themselves in that regard? Or is it is it an affinity really just over that they're both revisionist countries and they don't like the West? A lot of it is about that. So their history, um, it's always important to figure out what decade we're talking about as to whether Russia and China are getting along who are the individual leaders can often determine who's getting along. Um, so it's but not as simple geography as... Geography speaking, like they yeah. share a border, they're always going to have tensions, mm. right? You mm. can't change that. Um, Nathan's right to point out the fact that you've got that, you know, bromance there between the two. And I think that's problematic to predicate like our whole Western understanding of that relationship based on two people. What comes next? They're mm. both getting old. And so to that point though, like 
the actual Chinese and Russian people, how much of an affinity do they really actually have with each other? Like, do, does the ordinary person in China really care that much about no, Russia? I, it's I can, hard to tell. Yeah, I can speak from the Russian side, and that's like the Levada polls that keep coming out, and it's that historical overhang of fear, right? They took territory off the Chinese hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, you have a huge population in China and a sparsely populated Far East in Russia. Um, you know, that's a problem boiling away there that the Russians are very, you know, they're very aware of. Again, it also depends on the politics of the time. So at Absolutely. different points in history, Russia or the Soviets are seen as a model or a teacher for the People's Republic of China. And then other times it's seen as a, a, a revisionist Marxist power that they need to resist. Like so, But where do their interests really intersect other than having a, dissat- yeah, a dissatisfaction <laughs> yeah. with a US-led order? And that comes into what is uh, last week the 50th anniversary of, which is Nixon's trip to China, where he sort of takes China out of the you know, communist bloc quite firmly and you have the US and China against the Soviet Union and that plays a critical role right. in the decades that unfold. And you just look at, you know, you look at the relationship and if you kind of pick up that Sino-Russia relationship and plop it into different parts of the world, mm. it doesn't work, right? In the Arctic, sure, mm. there's an affinity there. In the Antarctic, hell no. Yeah. The Russians work with the Indians for all resupply. Mm. They sort of have no power over the Chinese. Pop it into Southeast Asia, into ASEAN. And when it comes to, like, being dissatisfied with how the international order looks. They both, the only thing they really have in common is both an inferiority and superiority complex. (laughs) They both have a model of what they want the world to look like, uh, but they constantly feel they're not being respected enough. And to some extent, that is true. But if we play this out, right, and they get what they wish for, which is that multipolar, you know, pie in the sky idea Mm. in which the US isn't calling the shots, do we actually think that there's going to be calm between Beijing and Moscow. Yeah. It's no it's, and who's calling the shots? Like that for me is more problematic, right? Well, and and that's goes going back to this particular agreement. It strikes me that it's becoming a fairly unbalanced partnership in the sense that it looks like China's the one benefiting most out of this in terms of getting greater economic leverage over Russia. Like is it correct to kind of say that you know uh, Putin needs to prepare Russia for potentially being subjected to quite extensive Western sanctions and therefore he needs to get an extra um, source of income from China through the gas deal, a gas deal which, you know, as I appreciate it, like it's a 30-year deal, but I believe it's correct that China's transition to other fuel sources is going to kind of peak their demand for gas in really only about a decade. So... There's going to be a situation where China is going to really actually could kind of take it or leave it when it comes to um, Russian gas and potentially have quite a lot more leverage over the Russian state than. Yeah, yes, yes, and no. But then you've also got what five or six new nuclear power plants that have been mm-hmm. built by the Russians in China. So I mean, they're right across the energy sector. There, um, yes, it's a lopsided relationship economically. I think for now it kind of fits in our Western assessment to really kind of overplay and sound warnings about Russian reliance on China, um, especially in the sanctions part of the piece. But if we have a look at the European states that are really, really at risk, they're overextended in terms of what they've got invested in Russia, mainly in the energy sphere, sphere, you've got, you know, Italy and France, you know, that makes sense as to why Western or EU sanctions at least have been you know, slowly, you know, 
rising. They haven't, um, you know, the pressure's not on, I'd say, even over Ukraine at the moment. Mm. They've got more to lose. And it depends to what extent China is interested in having this sort of influence. It has certainly in the Asia-Pacific to what it wants to the influence it could have in Europe? Is it going to just sort of, is the agreement to leave Europe to Russia to sort of handle? Because who gets to be the the top dog in that sort of uh, Russia-China partnership is why they fell out in the 1950s. Mm. Like, Absolutely. Look at, look at Ukraine. You've got China and Russia are neck and neck in terms of the import relationship they have with Ukraine, right? Um, so economically, Ukraine is reliant on both of them already to the same extent. Um I think the Ukrainian piece of the puzzle has been really fascinating to watch. Um, I didn't think there was clarity in the statement between Xi and Putin as to kind of Ukraine is, is, is Russian, Crimea is Russian in the same way that we didn't really get a Putin statement about Taiwan, mm. in my opinion. Um, in terms of primary strategic interest, the US is you know, playing its Ukraine hand exactly how I thought it would, which is we have no primary strategic interest in getting into a kinetic fight here with the Russians over Ukraine. Um, this is a European problem. Great timing for the French. They're, mm. you know, chairing the EU Council. Macron is liking his time in the in, in the sunshine. Well, Macron um, seems to think he's now the senior European leader. <laughs> Absolutely. But, I mean, he's got that vested interest of wanting a European security force anyway. Mm. Um so I I think, you know, let's go three, four weeks back on the Ukraine issue. There was so much, especially in the Twitter sphere, about, you know, a China-Russia alignment mm. um, and Ukraine would be the issue that it would clearly split the West with China, the West on one hand and China-Russia on the other hand. And I just don't think it's happened. It's still a melting pot of we don't know anyone's true intentions. Yeah, because one, of a, one of a key principle of Chinese foreign policy is non-interference. Mm. Um, and it's, Absolutely. I don't think even the masters of spin and propaganda in China could credibly say that Russia doesn't play influence games mm-hmm. in Ukraine, mm-hmm. that the issue of sovereignty is what the whole thing is about. And China's very sensitive uh, to things like that. Yeah, that's that. one of like the Chinese red lines. Yeah, right. There's this whole argument about like Putin's, what's Putin's grand strategy in Ukraine? You know, will he invade tomorrow? Well, he's amassing troops, you know. Look at TikTok, look at what's coming on rail. Um, what's fun for me at the moment is this like implicit assumption that, well, there's no way that Putin can roll back now. He has to save face. And it's yeah. like, you don't understand the domestic audience. There's a number of ways to spin sending troops home. Yeah. When you control basically when you control television. The PR system. Mm, yeah. But also, we don't know what kind of concessions are actually, you know, in the pipeline. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. 
Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. On this kind of hypothetical of what does China want to see, like it strikes me that their leverage to actually stop Russia invading Ukraine is, is probably overstated. But surely, like Nathan, would it be correct to say that their strategic interest would be to see the situation stabilised? Like I can't see for them what is beneficial of seeing Russia invade Ukraine, right? Yes, I, I think China is still very reluctant to see major instability and upheaval in the international system. That's mm. not its instincts, despite the rhetoric that comes out of China mm. more so these days. Um, it is a country that would prefer everything to be nice and normal and safe in which it can sort of trade. Um, uh, and You've got a sense of control, right? Yeah, um, and that it's important for China. China's always been, well, over the last few decades, China's still very reluctant to go on these sort of military expeditions mm. like it would prefer things to be handled much more calmly and it's interest still but it's still reluctant to do some of the things that say russia has shown it's still capable mm. and willing to do um no china china's instincts are for stability both at home and abroad mm. um, so i don't think it's going to be trying to goad putin into taking a stand in eastern europe um when maybe some deal can be reached that mm. will satisfy him. Because you do get those kind of propositions that, again, might emerge more on the kind of crazier corners of Twitter that it's like... The fun place. Well, <laughs> that, that, you know, that, that Ukraine is to Russia what Taiwan is to China and that if, you know, if um, Russia can bog down the West in a fight over Ukraine, it gives China, you know, a, a window of strategic opportunity in which to move on How Taiwan. does the US fight at two fronts, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, if only it was that simple. Yeah. Um, but then it comes into understanding having subject matter expertise and understanding the countries, Ukraine and Taiwan, you know, mm. that we're talking about, right? Ukraine, if you had a deep dive there at the demographics, you've got a fractured community, you know, t historically, you know, obviously formerly part of the Soviet Union, but towards the east we have, you know, Russian minorities. Mm. We have um, those that are polled towards the west, like the EU. It wasn't always about Ukraine potentially joining NATO. It was about its EU and its European values leaning as well. And we forget that. Um, so it, it's a bit of a hell in a handbasket scenario. And I think that is why Brussels, why Washington, you know, hasn't committed mm. in kinetic ways at all. Um, and is it's a slow burn conflict. This isn't new. This is 2014 at least. Mm. And we're still going. Um because yeah. it strikes me that everyone is all, – all parties involved here are acutely aware of the risks of escalation, mm. that this could very – like while there are potentially off-ramps, and I'd like to talk about those, but this could very easily get beyond everyone's ability to control it. You know, Russia's MO to kind of do this kind of saber-rattling and this posturing and then kind of cut a deal – their right, ability right. to kind of get up to that line and pull back is potentially And I think that's the problem. There's this assumption here that Putin has a grand plan. Yeah, That yeah, he yeah. sat down in a war mm. room and gamed out what to do in Ukraine. Yeah, He's a gambler. They right. They both are. 100%. And that's the strategic cultures that we don't fund expertise in enough here to mm. understand it from an Australian point of view. Um, so for me, you know, just wait and see until we have this relationship, the Sino-Russia relationship kind of come to head 
in our region. Mm. There's also countries <laughs> with like very long histories. These are regions which have changed, have been, been part of different countries and empires over centuries. There's often a sort of from country, from historically newer countries like say the United States or Australia even to sort of not consider their worldview, not have enough empathy for mm. actually what are the dynamics that play out in yes. these sorts of societies. What is the what is the society and education system and history that Vladimir Putin grew mm. up in? Um, what lessons did he learn from that? Eastern Europe has been. A contestable region for centuries. Yeah, yeah. Um, We don't do strategic cultures right. And I mean, something that's been interesting just in the Australian setting has been our news coverage of the Biden visit. Um, Sorry, the Blinken visit. Bees get me all the time, especially with one coffee, two two few bees. We didn't roll out nearly enough lower arrangements for Anthony Blinken. Right, but I reckon he said it, I think, two separate times to different journalists. You know, yeah, we've got the phone on for Ukraine. It's a bit of a problem. but our priority, he used these words, our priority is Indo-Pacific. So that's a signal, right, mm. that I don't think Brussels is picking up on yet. Mm. Europe has come down a notch in terms of the US's primary strategic theatre ordering. Mm. Indo-Pacific has come up there. Um, and that matters. Well, that, well, I suppose it's it's incumbent upon Blinken and, and the Biden administration. The bees. Well, they, they need to make China and Russia understand that as well, right? Like there is potentially an extent to which, you know, we're at a we're in a period where there's doubt. Right. See, but I wonder if the sort of in the China Russia dynamic they recognize that. Mm. And there is a discussion here that's occurred in which they've realized, you know, the West, led by the US, is really starting to put all of its eggs in the Indo-Pacific basket. Mm. If you have a window to pressure um, the current arrangements for European security, Putin, now is your time. Mm. Go for it and watch the reaction. And, I mean, as I said, eight years, this is the reaction. Mm. And the United States is not viewed necessarily in the same way it was decades ago about being a stable, uh, not just partner, but maybe stable country. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and so the, the US government would be keen to signal that, no, 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 We've got everything under control. Absolutely. We've I think got our we're... new friends. This is not a moment of weakness. Do you remember like back in 2020 when they were saying like uh, the coronavirus would be China's Chernobyl moment? Mm. Absolutely. Which is very sort of uh, <laughs> anti-Russia way of looking at things. Uh, but also um, it may have turned out to be sort of the US's Chernobyl moment. Yeah. For sure. It... I think we're just getting started in terms of what's really playing out here in terms of the international order and 2024 – you know, I don't think it should be a surprise mm. to see someone, perhaps even Trump, back in. Like if you look at, you know, the Rust Belt through the US, it's so divided. It's still very much um, those harder kind of America first policies simmering away. So I think, you know, mm. we aren't even at the fun part yet. Wait yeah. till we have a republic. <laughs> well, and, US. and I suppose this, this goes to the, the question of America's resolve, and and so how much of what is going on here, like you you mentioned, Nathan, before that the very kind of personal way in which you know it's it's she and Putin, it's not China and Russia, you know, like it's it's these two men. How much of this is also, I guess, on the part of um, the Putin's administration? a process of testing the resolve of a relatively new American administration at a time of America being, yeah, as Liz says, kind of in this potentially quite, you know, unstable moment. I think there's some of that. Like um, as 
Putin and Xi personal have a personalized politics in their own country, they are sort of going to see uh, it, it in similar ways in other countries, whether that's true or not. Um, during the Trump years, you still saw um, countries like Australia try and have a manageable working relationship um, with the United States. So it's not necessarily all about whether personalities get on. Um, sometimes common interests still prevail. And I think that's what the relationship between Russia and China, what people who are supportive of it um, are hoping, that there are these common interests that can withstand um, all these other factors. I guess the only common interest is probably that they both hate the West. Mm. They hate individual actors in the West who they perceive to be undermining their rule. Whether that's the basis of a viable relationship mm. in the long term is probably not as likely as, say, other things um, that other alliances are based on, for example. Yes, mm. that's what worries me about the idea of a new world order or an illiberal world order. Mm. Um you know, I don't think it's cohesive already, and that for me is terrifying. Mm. I don't think we can stop, the, you know, the power shifts that are underway. Um, like that's history, right? Mm. The unipolar moment is well and truly over. Uh, what comes next? I don't think we've done enough grunt work in terms of the analytical thinking about that, and that comes back to this kind of gatekeeping we have in our own sector in mm. academia um i'm sure i don't work in a basement so i'm sure someone's working on this well, well let, let's get to that i mean you know what what do you think needs to change in from australia's point of view in the australian system about how we study and understand and try to understand you know so i was really taken aback yesterday i went to the press club um meeting with the lithuanian foreign minister and you know, it's, it would be comical to have you know a Lithuanian foreign minister here speaking about the rules-based order and what we need to do to uphold it and why it matters if it wasn't so true, right? So he spoke to like their sort of come to Jesus moment, and that was you know the China Taiwan um, tensions in a domestic setting to do with the is it the Taiwanese consulate um, was opening there. I think that was what set it off. Um, and he said, you know, we we got together as a government and we kind of had a bit of a workshop and reflected on our points of weakness and where are we exposed to China at the moment and then realised, you know, this is not okay or this is not in line with what we think is acceptable for our national interest. So this is our policy, poke China in the eye, piss them off. Um, but at least they've had that discussion, you know, we're so divided here and to keep calling ourselves, you know, recognising and identifying as a middle power, it's like we don't have anything, no semblance of, you know, solidarity and what our purpose and our role is in the region, let alone the world. And that comes down to the fact I think we're so um, we're so divided in the security sector, in the academic sector, in the China realm, in the Russia realm. We don't contest ideas because we don't allow ourselves to. Um, you kind of cancelled if you say one thing that isn't government line or isn't, you know, like Washington talking points. And I think that's problematic. A lot of the well, – I read a lot of the China takes, um, but I, this would equally apply to Russia as well, are not enough understanding of their perspectives. There's not an, enough people who understand Chinese history, Russian history, and how they might think about their strategic situation. There's, you know, mm -hmm. there's plenty of people who know about all the different theories of international relations um, and all the security studies concepts, but actually why might uh, a Russian leader think like this? 
why might China put so much primacy on uh, pieces of territory that it lost? Like um, a lot of it comes from projecting what we might think about the world from societies with uh, shorter histories mm. and more focus on things like philosophy and common values. Well, actually, in these parts of the world, they've been um, they've been around for a long, long time and had to deal with a lot of different security um, threats and interests. Even like, was it the Russian word for security is without danger? Mm. So implicit mm-hmm. in that mm. is that. No, it's, the world is dangerous. But we're talking about like certainty and this Australian obsession with having certainty mm-hmm. in the international mm-hmm. or in the yeah, international don't have realm. Those rules. Australians and, love their rules and to follow rules. But awesome. Have your have your rules based order. Have your have your liberal democracy. But then take a step back and have a look at our region. It's illogical. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, how yeah. how are we forcing it to work? You know, so there needs to be a serious conversation here about, you know, what are the Australian national interests? Please give me them. Like mm. I, we don't have a national security strategy, mm. but you know what are our national interests? Um, there are going to be costs involved in in international power shift. There always are. So how do we navigate these changes in a way in which you know we can, they're bearable? These costs we can stomach them. Mm. And the, We're willing the, to go with them. We're not even having that conversation. We're you know trying to push back completely and deny. You know, and mm. so yeah, the, the the obsession we have with certainty and this kind of inability across the academic field, across you know the security space, right into journalism, right, um, and into the commentary space, to deal with complexity, but also to be okay in sitting in, in uncertainty. Mm. You know, and, and that navigation can be messy. It can and, be messy, but the, that's international politics. That yeah, is yeah. international politics. Like we, Some of the criticisms we lay on China, we could equally lay on India, for example. Absolutely. <laughs> when it comes to you know, human rights abuses the Ukra- against their Muslim population. For the Security Council yeah. Ukraine vote, right? It wasn't just China and Russia no. that helped with that to bed. The Indians did too. Um, well, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see um, – the dynamics in, in the United Nations, like even on um, uh, some of the decisions regarding, you know, pursuing a cybersecurity, uh, uh, what do they call it? Yeah, I think a cybersecurity uh, treaty, which, you know, was pushed very heavily by the Russians with Chinese support. But then when it got to the General Assembly, it got a lot of support from a whole lot of other countries. And, you know, the West was kind of outflanked. Absolutely. So I think, and I think that's potentially one of the issues is that we don't, it's not only that we don't think enough about, putting ourselves in the shoes of Russia and China. It's also that we project onto smaller countries that are stuck in the middle here our own kind of ideas. Like, you know, you think about some of the smaller countries, particularly in Australia's region, they've got a history where they've kind of had to cut deals with our sovereignty, right? Like they've had to make, you know, as you say, accept costs to try and find stability, security and economic opportunity in a world where they can never hope to run it, you know, never be a dominant player and i suppose you know we need to be mindful that um there is you know we have to believe in the inherent virtue of the liberal order that we stand for but that other countries are not necessarily going to accept that at face value that it does need to kind of be sold to them because they're used to kind of cutting deals between right but that powers. but that's okay but we aren't even having that conversation you know we we need this kind of certainty that the liberal rules-based order is the way to go and is mm. here to stay. And it's like, I think we might have missed the point of transition already where we've moved away from that. Um, and institutions, so we're talking about the UN as well, you know, institutions need to change and need to morph. And I think 
again, for the liberal Western countries like Australia, like the US, if we want to have a seat at that table, you know, we have to be willing to give a little. And, you know, I'm going to get tarred as the mm. pro-Russia, pro-China person for I even saying that, but, I mean, it's just sense-making. One sort of maybe silver lining is they don't understand us mm. as well. Yeah. Like it's not like they're two evil Bond villain geniuses uh, and they're playing us. Like I think – no, you, and you look at the, the mm. kind of very blunt way, you know, China's diplomatic um, engagement with Australia, like, is clearly not particularly well informed no. by how Australia uh, reacts to things and, and how Australians see themselves. Like, sure, sure, on Ukraine, Russia moved first. It amassed troops, but it also sent letters yeah. <laughs> to various parties of saying, hey, what do you think about European security? Please write to us. They, right? So there's already, already a bit of... Nuance. And they think we're a lot more cynical, they're, that we're as, as cynical as they are, and we think they're a lot less cynical than they actually are. So a deal can be cut. Like Putin isn't going to die on this hill over parts of eastern Ukraine, it's, right? I, like, I, I sometimes lay awake in, at night in bed, right? And as a mother, you know, will my child have an earth to grow up on kind of thing? But also, where's the Australian agency in this discussion? Like, if you think about international system shifting and, you know, centre of power moving to the Asia-Pacific, to the Indo-Pacific, whatever political term, but just geographically to our region, mm. right, Australia is a very important country. We're smack bang in the middle. We're mm. the anchor. Um, you know, we either step up and have some leadership in the region, you know, what does that look like? Um, is it entirely a liberal Western agenda? I'm not sure. I'm not sure we even can broach that subject. This needs to be the right catch-all. Like, what's Australia's interest? Oh, it's what is uh, our interest? Like liberal as... world uh, rules-based order. Yeah. So you so can't have gonna... that as a for everything. Well, but you can't, and you can't yeah. impose that on countries like Indonesia. Yeah, you can't impose that on what pretty much all of our neighbours. Yeah, I do get the impression that uh, sometimes the order that we're seeking is that nice little spot at the beginning in the 1990s, you know, yeah. post-Cold War. That's, that's what it. we want the world but to look like. Why can't it look like that anymore? It's so, Hanson <laughs> and Imbo, but, I mean, that's so illogical. Mm. It's it's almost scary. Well, and it's I suppose it's interesting to contrast with the approach that Russia and China is taking, which is to actively at every possible opportunity try and force a new world into creation, you know. Right, but not- they're also forcing the conversation. Yeah, we have to have that conversation. Um, and I, I don't even know where to start. And going back to what we were talking about before, about the state of the field here, you, you know, you're losing expertise left, right and centre mm. because you're sidelined from the conversation. Um, so we've got a lot of heavy lifting to do domestically. So is that – so, you know, Nathan was talking before about the importance of, you know, historical education in terms of understanding – um, the past of countries like China and Russia. What other, you know, what other measures could we undertake in terms of, I suppose, within Australian universities, but also kind of in think tanks, and then I guess within government to actually kind of boost the level of understanding. Australia, well, when it comes to say Chinese expertise, there's a huge uh, diaspora in Australia that is underutilized, um, and only people talk about utilizing only in the sense of. Uh, rooting out Chinese CCP mm. influence and mm. say, no, 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 they, there's a gr- greater need to bring those sorts of people into uh, policy decision-making spaces and to be involved in um, understanding the region we live in. Um, 
which is not done particularly effectively. Even little things like, I mean, I'm not vying for a security clearance in Australia, but from what I hear from other people in Canberra is it's quite rigorous and onerous on people who may have been born in other countries or yeah. had parents born in other countries. And that severely limits uh, the available people you have in those sorts Just of places. Just wait till you have the linguistic experience as well. Right, <laughs> yes. Uh, Russian sector is a bit, a bit the same, but I mean, I'm less pessimistic just because people age out and you die, you depart this beautiful earth. Um, but I mean, it, it's, it's heavy on those that worked in basements during the Cold War that only ever dealt with mother Soviet Union. Um, looking for reds under the bed at every turn. So they don't have that ability, I think, to see Russia as anything other than every policy decision, every strategic move, you know, can be found in its Soviet playbook. Yeah, I just don't mm. think it's that simple. I wish it was. Um, as someone who wasn't born in the Cold War, I don't have that, I guess, overhanging yearning to find um, those points of reference. Um but, I mean, my favourite story to tell is when I first came to Canberra to ANU to a PhD, um, I was told by a very prolific China scholar, you know, Liz, Russia's irrelevant. Come do your PhD on China, right? Golly. Look at us now. Yeah. It's in every newspaper. It's the top of the news. Um, certainly not irrelevant. Well, I was, I was actually, my first major was Russian <laughs> way back, and I was told the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, don't do it. Yeah. You don't need to just read. It collapsed. You know, it's you not read a thing. literature, and that's yeah. all you need yeah. Russian language. So, for. this whole obsession at the moment with, oh, you know, Russian naval power might one day find its way, you know, in the Indian Ocean. Okay. Well, the Soviet Union was a pretty powerful naval power that dominated the Indian Ocean. We were worried about them invading at one point. It comes yeah, back yeah. to that sort of how we look at the 1990s, right? We see it at this glorious yeah. golden age. But if you ask a Russian what the 1990s was like, it's a very different experience. You didn't, get, you didn't get Levi's. And you need to paid. know that to understand how Putin comes to power, what Russians where think the about blame. their past. Yeah, right? where the blame for that livelihood sits, mm. and it sits to the West. Mm. Um, but again, I mean, you've got to travel to these countries. There's a huge difference in Western opinions um, between St. Petersburg and Moscow. Huge Right, um, I think there's there's also surely a role to play in terms of um, the Australian media. You know, like we don't have the kind of footprint of foreign correspondents in these countries or overseas as we used to. And I think it's incumbent upon you know Australian journalists and commentators in you know in the newspapers to actually look at these things a little bit more critically. You know, it is it's interesting to see a kind of cookie cutter approach of applying Cold War dynamics to today's discussion. To, which I mean, it's sad because communication at the end of the day is the one thing that gets you through any crisis, mm. right? And whether it's, you know, foreign ministers or presidents, you know, communicating, there's also something to be said, like you said, for the media level, for the public opinion level. Um, we don't have that anymore and we're in dire straits. Well, on that joyful note, Nathan, Liz, thank you so much for coming into the National Security College for this really pertinent discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.